The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. If you have your Bible or your smartphone, go ahead and open it to the book of Psalms, or you can click there if you're on a digital Bible. And we're going to be in Psalm 1 this evening. Psalm 1, it's often been called the gateway to the Psalms, for obvious reasons. Uh, Being the first Psalm, it lays the groundwork uh, for the rest of the Psalms. And uh, just have to say how blessed I have been studying through the book of Psalms together with you guys and have been so blessed uh, by the, the studies we've been doing. Sean did an awesome job last week talking us through our anger issues and dealing with those in a biblical and appropriate manner. And so tonight we're going to continue our study. And uh, the, the title of my sermon is A Tale of Two Paths. Really original with that title, A Tale of Two Paths. Not A Tale of Two Cities, that was Dickens. This is A Tale of Two Paths. And you might want to think of this as a choose-your-own-adventure sermon. Do you remember those from when we were kids? If you're my age, if you grew up in the 80s or the 90s, then you'll probably remember those novels, the choose-your-own-adventure novels. They were so much fun. I guess I went back and looked it up. They were invented by a guy named Edward Packard. And he was telling his daughters a story one night as he was tucking them in and putting them to bed. And usually he was a pretty creative guy with his stories. But on that particular night, he was tired and the creative juices weren't flowing. And so he asked them for a bit of help. And he would get to a certain point in the story and ask them, well, where do you think the story should go from here? And he would give them a choice. And then that would then dictate where the story went. And and so this idea, this concept for an interactive book was born. And they ended up being a tremendous success because in those choose-your-own-adventure novels, you became the star of the story. So for example, you might come to the end of a page. Let's say it was page 12. And at the bottom of the page, it might say something like, you've just come upon a closed door. If you want to walk through the door, turn to page 24. If you're scared and you want to run away, then turn to page 25. And so you had to make a choice. And it was paramount that you chose carefully because choosing wrongly could result in your death. And a lot of those choices ended with grisly deaths. And so there were all these warnings, like make sure you choose carefully because once you've chosen, you can't go back and undo a choice that you've made. Of course, that never stopped me or anyone else who read those books from reading the various options and seeing how each choice played out and and then going back and then picking the one, the ending that I liked best. Um, In some of the books, there were as many as 38 different possible endings. And I can remember reading through all of them and picking, hmm, I think I I want this ending. And I was thinking about that. And wouldn't it be nice if real life worked like that? Wouldn't it be great if you could lay out all of the options before you and then look at all of the potential outcomes for each choice that you're considering making and then pick the ending that suited you best? For that matter, wouldn't it be great if you could go back and unchoose things that you've chosen or unsay things that you've said or unpick things that you've picked? And of course, we know as nice as that would be, that's just not 
how real life works. What's been done has been done, and what's been said has been said. You can't go back. But even though that's true, and we can't go back and undo things that we've already done, what we can do is change our course moving forward. And that's the beautiful thing about life, isn't it? If you don't like the path that you're on, then there's nothing stopping you right now from picking a new path. If you don't like the arc or the trajectory of your story, you can pick a new storyline. And that's the beautiful thing about life. We're in control of the arc or narrative of our own story. So knowing that to be the case, I wonder, is your story playing out the way that you want it to? And if the answer is no, then what's keeping you from picking a new storyline? You see, as we come to Psalm 1, what we find is that the reader is presented with a choice between two different paths. So we have a choice to make here. We can choose to walk down the road of the righteous, or we can choose to go down the way of the wicked. By the way, all of us are currently on one of those two paths. Right now, at this very moment, you are either treading on the road of the righteous or you're wandering down the way of the wicked. And, and I, for one, love the simplicity of that. God doesn't give us 38 different potential outcomes or endings. He doesn't give us 38 choices. This isn't Baskin Robbins with 31 flavors. He gives us two choices. Come to think of it, I think that's probably why so many of us love In-N-Out Burger's menu. Somebody on the other side of that screen say, hallelujah, amen, praise Jesus. When you get to In-N-Out, and this is what bugs me, when I'm in the line at In-N-Out and someone in front of me is like taking their time and you can tell that they're really like considering the options. It's like, how could this possibly be taking you any time? There's three things. You want a hamburger? You want a cheeseburger? You want a double cheeseburger? <laughs> That's all there is, you know. This should not be taking time. Sorry, I'm confessing my sins here, dealing with my anger. Thank you, Sean, for, for that. I'm just trying to be honest. Now, the, the flip side of that would be the menu at the Cheesecake Factory. I mean, if you've ever been to the Cheesecake Factory, studying that menu, it's like a novel. There's like chapters and subheadings and all the rest. It can take you 45 minutes before you're even ordering. But I'm digressing. I'm getting off the path here. The point in all of that was God gives us a simple choice a choice between two paths. And this choice gets presented in a variety of different ways throughout the scripture. I'll share a few of them. So for example, in the Garden of Eden, God gives Adam and Eve a choice between the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Which tree are you going to choose? Later on in the book of Deuteronomy, God gives his people a choice. He says, I've set before you life and death blessings and cursings. And just in case they were having a little trouble deciding between those, he says, choose life. Like, that's the right answer. Choose life that you might live. A little later on, you come to the book of Proverbs and we find these choices presented between the path of wisdom and the path of folly. And then you travel a little further in your Bibles and you come to the gospel narratives and they're in Jesus' most famous sermon the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about two roads, a wide road and a narrow road, two gates, two foundations, and two eternal destinies. And here once again in Psalm 1, we see this picture or this choice between two paths. 
the road of the righteous and the way of the wicked. One leads to blessedness and happiness and fruitfulness and success. And the other, well, the other leads to judgment and cursedness. Which path will we choose? The suspense is killing me. Let's read it. Verse one, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. Then like a tree firmly planted, he'll be. Anyway, it's an old song we used to sing. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. And get this, whatever they do, it prospers. Not so the wicked. They're like the chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord, he watches over the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. So here we we come to a fork in the road, so to speak, two different paths. And the psalmist begins by telling us that the road of the righteous is the blessed path. And the word blessed there in the Hebrew language, it's written in the plural tense. So we might render it, oh, the blessedness or oh, the many blessings. Or you might paraphrase verse 1 in this way. Oh, how very, 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 very happy is the man or the woman who dot, dot, dot. He's saying, do you want to be blessed? Do you want to be successful? Do you want to be happy? Do you want to be fruitful? Do you want to flourish? If so, then he's going to lay out for us how to do that. And notably, the first piece of advice he gives us is watch out who you walk through life with. Keep close tabs on the company that you keep. Because as the scriptures say, I think it's 1 Corinthians 15.33 tells us that bad company corrupts good character. For better or for worse, our lives end up getting shaped by the people that have the most access to us. Whether or not we want them to, they end up having the most influence on us. And so I've heard it put like this, you show me your friends and I'll show you your future. So the truth is the people we walk with and do life with, they end up having a tremendous influence over where we go and who we ultimately eventually end up becoming. That's why the Proverbs say, the righteous choose their friends carefully, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. Now, I know there are some young people out there on the other side of that screen that are watching this and in their minds, perhaps you're protesting. You're saying, what's the big deal about the friends that I have or who I hang out with? It's, it's not that big a deal. After all, just because I hang out with someone doesn't mean that I'm necessarily going to participate with them or end up doing the same things that they're doing, right? Just because they jump off the end of a bridge doesn't mean I'm going to do the same thing. <laughs> and I can understand where you're coming from. But what time and experience has shown me is that if you walk with the wrong crowd for very long, it's only a matter of time before you end up doing exactly what your peers are doing, those people that you're walking with. And if you doubt that, 
then just sit down and have a conversation with Peter. You remember his story? I'm sure Peter thought that the last thing, in fact, we know that Peter thought that the last thing that would ever happen to him is that he would deny his Lord. In fact, he bragged about it. He said to Jesus, when Jesus said, Peter, you're going to deny me. Peter said, that's, that's ridiculous. All these guys, and he points to all the other disciples. And you have to imagine they're sitting there going, really? Thanks a lot, Peter. He says, all these guys, they might deny you, but not me. I'm Pete. I'm your rock. Remember? Famous last words, right? Those of you who are familiar with the story know that that's exactly what happened. But how did it happen? Well, the Bible tells us how it happened. It began when Peter began to follow Jesus at a distance. He wasn't walking stride for stride with Jesus. For that matter, he wasn't walking with the other disciples either. He was following Jesus at a distance. He was on his own. And that eventually led to him warming himself at the fire of the enemy. He was warming himself at this fire next to the very people who had just arrested Jesus. He was walking at a distance. He got caught up in the wrong crowd. And that led to him ultimately denying his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we can see this progression. As Psalm 1 points out, blessed is the one who doesn't walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the company of the scornful. So there's this downward spiral, if you can imagine a drain and this thing just circling the drain. That's Peter. He's walking with the wrong crowd. He's standing in the midst of the wrong crowd and then he's taking part in their terrible sins. And that's always the way it works, by the way, when it comes to backsliding. It almost never happens all at once. It's almost always a slow, gradual process from walking to standing to sitting. You could say that big sins always start with small compromises. I can't even begin to tell you the number of people that have sat down with me in my office over the years and their life is a mess and it's in shambles and in one way or another they say something along the lines of how did I end up here? It wasn't supposed to happen like this. And invariably as we retrace their steps we find that along the way before the big calamity there were a ton of small compromises. You see what I'm trying to get drive home here? No one wakes up in the morning and says, you know what, today feels like a great day to, to, to ruin my life. I think I'll cheat on my wife, or I think I'll take up heroin as a hobby, or I think I'll neglect my kids and just pour myself into work at all costs kind of a thing. No, there are always tons of tiny, little unwise decisions that get made along the way that seem like no big deal at the time. And this is Satan's strategy, and we would be wise to heed it and to understand it. Satan's not going to try to turn you 180 degrees away from Jesus in one day. No, no, no. He, he's much too smart for that. He would much rather just try to barely get you off the path, the road of the righteous, maybe just by one click or even one degree. And you say, what's the big deal? And it might not be a big deal. But he knows that over time, if he can get you just one degree off course, the trajectory of your life will lead you further and further away from Jesus. As an example of that, consider this. I read somewhere that for every 
one degree off that a pilot is in his flight chart, for every one degree off that he is, for every mile that he flies, he will be 92 feet off of his projected landing site. So that's not that big of a deal if you're only flying one mile, right? One mile, you're off by 92 feet. But what happens is over time, the farther you fly, the further off course you get. So on a flight from JFK to LAX, if you're off by one degree, you're going to miss your landing spot by 40 miles. (laughs) That's a big difference. Now, if you were to take off on the equator and try to circumnavigate the globe at that equator and you were only one degree off, by the time you reached your starting point, you'd be 500 miles off your projected landing spot. And the further you go, the, the greater the variance becomes. So we can see how important it is that we don't deviate from the path. We need to stay in lockstep on this path that God has laid out before us. But how do we do that? We need a roadmap. We need a compass. We need a light to guide our way. We, we need a north star, so to speak. If only God had given us something like that. Oh, yeah, he has, hasn't he? Psalm 119, verse 105 says, The word, your word, is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. God's word is the light that illuminates the path before us that he wants us to walk down. It's not just our light, it's our map, it's our compass, it's our north star, which is why the psalmist goes on to say, the blessed man or woman, he delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it both day and night. And here we learn that the defining characteristic of the blessed man and the blessed woman is that they delight in the word of the Lord. In other places in scripture, we're encouraged to read the word and to study the word and to search the word and to hold the word and to wield the word like a sword and to desire the word and to eat the word. But here the psalmist tells us that it's also important that we delight in the word. Now that's a delightful word, isn't it? Delight. When you delight in something, what are you saying? You're saying essentially that I find supreme value in this thing. And we delight in all kinds of things, don't we? I mean, parents delight in their kids and sports fans delight in their favorite sports teams and couples who are in love delight in one another's company and grandparents delight in their grandkids and and so on and so forth. I personally find great delight in a perfectly cooked eight ounce medium rare steak. Oh, that sounds good, doesn't it? I, I find great delight in that. And we find delight in all kinds of things. But here the psalmist says, I find delight in the word of the Lord. And I think it's a good question to ask ourselves. Could that same thing be said of us? Can you say to me, I I find delight in the word of the Lord. I can't wait to open up my Bible each and every day. And, And I think if we're being honest, the vast majority of people out there, rather than finding great delight in the law of the Lord or in the word of God, they just dismiss it altogether. 
They write it off as irrelevant and unnecessary and unimportant. They struggle to see how something that was written so long ago could possibly have anything relevant to say to their modern sensibilities. Of course, we know it hasn't always been that way in our country. America was in large part founded on, on the principles of God's word. And, and it was the things in this book that guided our founding fathers as they laid out our constitution. And, and in fact, if you go back, back far enough, one of the main textbooks in every single classroom across America was this book right here. <laughs> Man, we've, we've fallen a long way from there, haven't we? I mean, I don't even think you're allowed to legally pray in schools anymore. But as sad as that is to see how far America is, has strayed from the word of God, you know what's even sadder? It's to see Christians push the word of God to the outer edges or periphery of their lives. I mean, on the one hand, while it's unconscionable, it's understandable that the secular world would relegate the word of God to an unimportant place. But what is mind-boggling is that we would do it as Christians. I mean, there are a lot of churches out there today that they don't even study the word anymore. They might reference it vaguely in their sermon from time to time, and they might hold it up as a prop, but they certainly don't delight in it. They're not reading from it. They're not studying it. There was a time when the church was known as a people of the book, and we need to recover that moniker. See, my fear is that what was true in the days of Amos is also true of our day. Listen to what the Lord spoke through the prophet Amos. He said, the days are coming when I will send a famine through the land. Not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Did you hear that? In a typical famine, there's not enough sustenance or food. But in this case, the famine is for the word of the Lord. And I believe that we're living in similar times. Of course, the ironic thing about that is, is that there's never been a generation that has enjoyed more readily available access to God's word than, than we have. I mean, I read this article in the Huff Post as I was preparing this message, and it, it referenced a survey that was done. And of those respondents to this survey, 88% said that they owned at least one Bible. And of those, 80% of those said that they felt that the Bible was a sacred text or God's word. Now, however, as the study went on to point out, only, or rather 57% of those said that they only read the Bible four times a year or less. That's ludicrous. On the one hand, we're saying, yes, we have the Bible, and yes, it's sacred. This is God's word, but I only touch it four times a year. We're starving, but it's not for a lack of food. Think through it like this. Imagine that you were to go to Costco, and there you are in Costco, grabbing your toilet paper, yada, yada, doing your thing. And you, you meet a friend in Costco, and you find out that this guy has secretly been living in Costco for the last two years. He's made his home in Costco. And so week after week, you visit this friend as you go to stock up on more toilet paper and food and whatnot. But you notice something about him. Every time you see him, his face is a little more gaunt. His ribs are starting to protrude just a bit more. His arms look a bit more frail. And you can tell that, that he's slowly starving to death. If you met someone like that, first of all, 
This is kind of a weird story. But second of all, if you met someone like that who lived in Costco, what would you tell them? What are you doing? There's a guy giving out free samples of Hot Pockets right there. Go grab one. Let's eat. You have food all around you. How could you possibly be starving? And you see where the analogy is going. That's us. We have the word of God all around us, but we're not eating it. We need to grab hold of the heart of Jeremiah the prophet who said this, your words were found and I did eat them. And they were to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Praise the Lord. But then again, maybe you would say, well, I would read the Bible more, but I just don't have the time. And this falls into that category of excuses that so many people offer, right? And that might be the worst one of all, because we all know that you find time, we make time for the things that truly matter to us. Your phone will tell you how much time you've logged just staring at your screen. And that'll tell you you have the time, especially now. Other people say, well, I, I tried reading the Bible and I didn't understand it, so I gave up. Well, again, I would just point you to the multitude of resources that are out there. Join a Bible study group or join a growth group or, or plug into some other place in line that, that can feed you through the word. I mean, there's so many tools at our disposal. And then again, another question that I get a lot is, well, if I'm going to read the Bible, which version should I choose? What's the best version? And you know my answer to that? I always say, you know what the best version of the Bible is? The one that you'll read. Just find a version of the Bible that you'll read and start there. But don't just read it. Meditate on it. That means to chew on it and to think through it and to to wrestle with it in your mind day in and day out. The picture is of a man or a woman both day and night meditating, thinking, just just marinating themselves in the things of the word. And then after you've read it and meditated upon it, make sure that you go out and do what it says. Otherwise, it's all for naught, right? Don't just be a hearer of the word. Make sure that you're a doer of the word. Delight in it. And before we move on, I have just one more thing to say on this point. I was struck by something. When the psalmist wrote this, how he delighted in the law of the Lord, he didn't have the same Bible sitting in his lap that you and I have sitting in ours. What do I mean? Well, think about it. Most of it hadn't even been written yet. So when he's delighting in the law of the Lord, he's talking about the law or what's known as the Pentateuch. It's comprised of the first five books of the Bible. So you've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's all he had. Now, those books are fantastic, and there is so much light and beauty in them, so much to delight in. But as great as they are, it's far from complete. The revelation he had was so truncated. It was so small by comparison. And if he was able to find such great delight in the law of the Lord, my thinking is how much more delight should those of us on this side of the cross be able to find? We don't just have the law. We have the prophets and we have the added advantage of the poets and we have the epistles too. And beyond that, we have the gospels. And in the gospels, we see the the fulfillment of all the types and the symbols and the shadows of which the Old Testament pointed to and 
foretold of and spoke about. We see in Jesus the fulfillment of all of these things. And then as if all of that weren't enough, God has blessed us with the book of Revelation, which tells us the end of all things so that we get a synopsis of where this train is headed. We get the big picture, 30,000 foot view of where we're headed. I hope you're starting to, to get an appetite for the word. I mean, sure, he had the law, but whereas he had five books, we have 66. He had the law, but we have the spirit. He had the sacrifices, but we have the cross. He had the system of the priests, but we have a savior and a high priest in Jesus who can make intercession for us and ever lives at the right hand of the father where he prays on our behalf. Man, we have it so much better. Are we taking advantage of the blessings that we've been given? Years ago, I stumbled upon the following description of God's word, and it's just so good. I have to read the whole thing to you. The author is unknown, but here's what it says. The Bible, this book, reveals the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy. Its precepts are binding. Its histories are true and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise. Believe it to be safe and practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It's the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here paradise is gained, heaven opened and hell disclosed. Christ is its grand object, our good, its design, and the glory of God, its end. It shall fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. It is given you in life, will be opened in the judgment and be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility, promises the highest reward for labor, and condemns all who trifle with its sacred contents. How beautiful is that? That's what we have at our fingertips, or for many of us, right here in our phones. And if you don't have the YouVersion Bible app, go and download it right now. You have my permission to take a break from this sermon. That's what will lead us into this heart desire, this heart cry, where we meditate on the word day and night. The word will go from being this lifeless, dull drudgery to being a true delight. Now, as the psalm moves on, and I won't take as long in this next section as I did in that first part, I promise you. But what we get to see in verses three through six is the outcomes of these two paths. So the psalm begins by presenting us with a choice between two different roads, the road of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And depending on which path you choose, it will determine which outcome you eventually experience. So let's start with the road of the righteous, the blessed life. That person, the person who delights in the law of the Lord, he'll be like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither and whatever they do prospers. That is a comprehensive picture of the life that all of us inherently desire, is it not? 
He talks about this tree that's planted by a stream of water. In other words, it has a continual source of nourishment and life flowing to it. And if you think about a tree, it's meant to convey an idea of strength and stability. A tree that's roots have grown down deep over time can weather any storm. And so, so too will the Christian who delights in the word of the Lord be able to withstand the storms that inevitably will find their way to your door. But beyond that, it also is a a tree that is fruitful. It produces its fruit in its proper season. And, And that's a beautiful picture too. But what is it? pointing to? What is the fruitfulness of which this picture speaks? And I I think on a personal level, it speaks to us of the fruit of the Spirit that we read about in Galatians chapter 5, which is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control and so on and so forth. And when you plant yourself in the Word, your life will abound and overflow with love and joy and peace and all these things. Beyond that, on a corporate level, as we think about fruitfulness, I believe it's speaking to us about effectiveness in ministry. And God has put you on this planet for a purpose, and that purpose is your personal ministry. You have a path that God wants you to walk down, and it's not just about you consuming for you. It's a path that is meant to provide fruit in the lives of others. Jesus said, I've come that you might bear fruit, that you might bear more fruit, and that you might bear much fruit, John 15. And so God's goal for your life is that you would be fruity (laughs) in the best possible way. And that fruit is effectiveness in sharing the gospel and seeing lives change for the glory of God. And that's God's desire. And finally, if all that weren't enough, he says, your leaf will never wither. You'll be an evergreen. You'll never be out of season. And all that you do will prosper. Amazing. That's pretty comprehensive. So what's the other option? Show me what's behind door number two. Okay, not so the wicked. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. Now here he paints a picture of a threshing floor. If you're a member of Maranatha, then you're well acquainted with this metaphor or picture. And in Israel, in ancient Israel, they had these things called threshing floors where they would take the wheat. But the wheat, the the part that you would want to eat, it was hidden inside a husk or a kernel that needed to be broken open. And so what they would do is they would gather the wheat in sheaves, and then they would have animals trample on it, which would loosen the husk and begin to separate it from the kernel that you'd actually want to eat that was usable. And then on the tops of these high hills where there was generally a nice strong breeze, they would take that wheat in in these um, sheets and they would throw it up into the air. And as the wheat went up, the wind would drive away the weightless chaff and the kernel of wheat that had substance would fall back to the earth. And then that could be harvested and used in whatever capacity. And that's what happens to those who walk in the way of the wicked. They just kind of, they vanish. They're like smoke. They, They won't stand in the day of judgment. Their lives are weightless. There's nothing of substance to that life. And so the psalm ends with the conclusion. It says, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction and death. So the way of the wicked leads to destruction and death. The way of the righteous leads to life. Have you made up your mind yet? 
Let me give you a minute. I know this is tough. (laughs) There's no choice to be made, right? We would all obviously choose the road of the righteous. Getting a glimpse of these two paths. One leads to blessedness. The other leads to destruction. One leads to life. The other leads to death. One leads to fruitfulness. The other leads to barrenness. We all want to walk down the road of the righteous. And yet, as badly as we do, If you're honest with yourself, you'll have to admit there are plenty of times when you deviate from that path. I know I do. And why is that? As badly as I want to follow Jesus, as badly as I want to walk down this road and this picture that's painted for me of this path of blessedness, there are times when I get off it and I go down a rabbit trail and it turns out that wanting to be on the right path isn't always enough to keep us on the right path. So where does that leave us? It leaves us looking for a savior. You see, the only person who ever perfectly fulfilled the picture that Psalm 1 paints of this blessed life is Jesus of Nazareth. He never once found himself walking down the wrong road. He never sat in the seat of the scornful. He never stood in the path of sinners. He always delighted in the law of the Lord. He said at one time, I always do those things that please the Father. He's the only one who could say that. For my part, for yours, we're all like sheep. Every one of us has turned away, but thank God we serve a savior in Jesus who is a good shepherd who leaves the 99 and goes after that one lost lamb in order to bring it back onto the path that was prepared for it. So as it turns out, what we're not looking for is a path. What we're really needing is a person. The person is the path. Jesus said, I am the way. He didn't say, I'm going to point you on the road and good luck. Here's your GPS. If you need Siri, holler for her. No, he said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And so to walk down this path is to walk in step with him. It's to follow him. It's to love him. It's not about following the rules or staying on the right road. It's about staying in lockstep with Jesus. And he'll make sure that you get to your destination. So which choice will you make? I know where I land. I choose Jesus. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.